the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Satanic ska is a real thing that actually exists. This is a headline that online metal magazine Loudwire ran in 2021. The band they're referring to is, of course, Mephiscopheles. And while I get how enamored Loudwire was with the obvious juxtaposition of ska in satanic music, what was missing from the article is the prominent role that satire plays with them. Today, we right that wrong by talking to two founding members of Mephiscopheles, Michael Reich and Brendan Tween. The group formed in 1990 in New York. They released their first record in 1994, God Bless Satan, a unique ska album that incorporates jazz, rock, and avant-garde songwriting style with traditional mid-paced ska grooves. We explore the group's formative years and what went into the creation of God Bless Satan. And we also talk about Michael and Brendan's new band, Barbicide. They released their album, Songs About Heartbreaks and Nazis, earlier this year. There's always a weird divide when it's the members who started a band and the members who join a band, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been the member who joins in a lot of my bands. You are an OG member. Yeah. Are you talking about Flat Planet? Definitely. I was I was the founder of Flat Planet. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like it's interesting to hear the perspective of people who were there at the, at the beginning and also you know, the perspective of people who kept it going. Yeah. They don't always see the band exactly the same way. You definitely see it differently. I want to start the conversation with uh, something specific about uh, Mephiscopheles' debut album, God Bless Satan. Go for now, it. Now, one, one conversation I had with Michael a little while back was about the record having lots of little advertising references <laughs> in, in there. And, and uh, I'd like to kind of walk through some of these. Because there's the obvious one, obviously, Bumblebee Tuna is... sure. A very famous uh, song that that was on an ad, but uh, that's not the only one. Can you tell us some of the other ones? Oh God! Well, we we had a lot of things. We had um, for in our demo tape, we had um, the guy from the Deviled Ham. That was one of them. We also like in in Eskimo, we referenced Bazooka Joe, 
and mm-hmm. uh, like chewing whale blubber, like Bazooka Joe. And then we had in, um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, we had in, oh God, we had the perking pot theme from Maxwell house. That's in, oh God, what was that in? That was in, I'm trying to remember. Center of the? Yeah, it was in center of the world. So we, we have the horns coming back in yeah. and it was like this kind of, it was like a sound jingle. It was like a, it's just like a sound signature that was in the, you know, in a Maxwell house commercial from like the fifties. That was like, bop, 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 Things like that was really funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also got uh, one that you told me about was uh, Oscar Meyer Wiener ad. Oh yeah, that's that's starts the whole album out. Yes, my bol- my baloney has a first name. It's S A T A N. So at this time and to this day, uh, Michael, you worked in advertising. Yeah. So obviously, that's some of this is coming from that. But what's the tone? Are you weaving in these advertising references because you think advertising? is evil you think advertising is <laughs> funny like what is your tone as a person who works in advertising well it's it's actually it's a it's a funny question because i i was actually in the band before i got into advertising so i was more you know i was coming from the punk scene and from the ska scene and just from the music scene and just doing stuff and then i i got i randomly got a job in advertising because i was also doing theater i was doing like downtown experimental crazy ass theater pieces and, um, but then when I, I got into advertising through, cause I knew this guy, uh, that was in advertising, but, um, he came to see a show I did. So I kind of came in through the back door, um, into mm. the agency. So it was more of a, I was like a punk in, in an ad scene, but I got into it. I was having fun. So I was, I was having more fun just like seeing what I could screw with in terms of advertising. But I saw the whole thing as like this kind of just disgusting, corrupt, insane you know world so but but i also grew up in front of a television so i'm kind of obsessed with tv as well and um just i think our generation is so is brendan and um i think when we just when we were just everything about the band was like i don't know you know just some things came out with in terms of us like creating a logo for the band and just it was almost like this mass marketed satanic weird you know i don't know kind of a more more sort of vomiting the whole, you know, marketing a capitalist and crazy world than actually trying to, I don't know, kind of comment on it or just be it. I think that's, uh, you know, it's just, just having fun with it. So kind of a little bit of a complicated point of view in a way. So it's fun, it's satirical, but it's kind of a complicated point of view. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it was just, uh, just, just coming just like almost a regurgitation of stuff. And I think of just a lot of our songs are, they're not, they weren't necessarily preachy or literal or anything. It was just kind of, we were just kind of just things that were just coming off our head. It was almost, I don't know, like only bordering on not psychedelic, but just sort of on those things where it's like, I don't exactly know what this means. I mean, I think even the whole satanic thing, it was like, you know, it was sort of like everybody was in on the joke, I think, which was yeah. like a really fun thing about it. it. You know, I mean, obviously people that weren't were like, are you? are you really into Satan? And, and I think it was just us being just like, you know, it was just, we just thought it was funny. And that, that again, you know, comes back to the whole point is that a lot of what we did, we did because we thought it was funny, you know, it amused us. Yeah. So much about just even just naming the band Mephiscopheles and doing this thing was just, I mean, the ska scene like was really big and we were really into it. You know, when we got into it, it was like the very end of the eighties. Um, 
when we started, you know, um, started forming our band and, um, yeah, you know, we started doing it. We were, I mean, we just start to play music because none of us were like pro, you know, ska musicians or pro musicians at all. So we were just doing it. And the sound that came out was the sound that came out and the stuff that we played, it just kind of came out of our sensibility and our sense of humor. And we thought it was really funny. And a lot of people were like, we were like, oh, yeah, we're going to call ourselves Mephiscopheles and, you know, we're going to satanic ska band. People were like, no, man, that's not cool. You should call yourself. <laughs> people, I remember somebody telling us to say, no, you should call yourself something like the billiards. So we were oh, like the billiards. Yeah. I so for me, that's always stuck in my mind of like, that's what we could have been. Cause you know, the eight ball is black and white. Exactly. But I mean, you know, it's like, but for me, it was like, you know, in my, in my mind about the way that the band became what it became was I had no, I wasn't into the ska scene. I, I didn't know ska at all. And it wasn't until I moved in with Michael and Michael's like, Oh no, you got to check this out. This is great. <laughs> you know, but I think a big part of what gave us our unique sound was that, we didn't really, nobody in the band was really into ska. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when we got horn players, none of them even knew what the style was. You know, I know that we have a lot of derivative sounding stuff, you know, like we have sort of trad stuff that's scatolites ish, you know, and a lot of that comes from, you know, like Michael and I, we worked together in a poster shop on, on uh, St. Mark's and we used to spin intensified eight hours a day. You know, so it was inevitable that that would come become influential in terms of, you know, what the band ended up sounding like. But it was really that nobody in the band really knew ska at all. So I had come from a punk rock, like a hardcore background. And, you know, like the Shaved Pigs, the band I was in before Mephiscopheles was not like not like an agnostic front New York hardcore band. We were more like a Dead Kennedys kind of hardcore band, you know, and Meph, what it sounded like initially was a product of that more than any kind of like, you know, any any influences we derived from the ska scene were, I think, at the beginning were fairly minimal, you know, mm -hmm. and it it sounded like it did because of that. <laughs> it's also know? just we weren't capable of playing anything better. Right. <laughs> then there, that's, there's that, too. <laughs> so the, um, the idea that, like, you know, there's humor and you guys are... Uh, assuming that people will be on the joke when loudwire released an article like two years ago that said <laughs> satanic scott is a real thing that actually exists and that kind of went a little bit viral <laughs> what was your take on that because that just feels <laughs> like multiple layers of the culture being misunderstood and then spit back <laughs> totally uh, in, a, in a way that didn't make sense exactly <laughs> well i think it was just it was such a funny thing i well first of all just when that thing came out that was like so many years after we you know we we started and were playing so i thought it was really funny that that came out but it was you know i, I mean i thought it was so funny because it was like we were kind of creating a subculture within a subculture mm -hmm. that didn't really even exist so i think it was like you know i i, I think people that and i think that was actually part of the the appeal of the band was like people felt like hey they were part of something they were part of the joke they were part of the thing yeah. so you know and i think that's and i think that's actually not that all bands are a joke but i think it's i think so much about being into a band is feeling like you're a part of something you know mm -hmm. this is like so and i think that was that was a cool thing at the time because it was like i don't know you know it was like beyond pretense and stuff you know so yeah 
But then you have, you know, a, an article like the Loudwire article comes out because, you know, Ska died in in 99, right? And then Ska enjoyed another little renaissance and then it died again. And now we have a new renaissance of new Ska, you know, or whatever you want to call this, this, the new wave, you know, which is wonderful. I mean, the bands are incredible and everything, but Mephiscopheles, you know, I, I mean, I guess as one of the sort of, sort of like an OG band, you know, from back in the day, a lot of people that are into ska today really don't know a lot of the bands that were, you know, out there in the nineties, except the ones that, you know, were on major labels, you know, like the boss tones and, you know, the bands on Five Ten and epitaph and whatever, you know, so loudwire writing an article about satanic ska as a thing and, you know, a real thing, whatever doesn't really surprise me, you know, given the, the, you know, undulations of, you know, the popularity of ska over the last like 30 years, mm -hmm. you know, because it's a long time, yeah. you know, there's kind of just been lots of mini, mini waves of it. I mean, because by the time we got into it for me, and I, I still think it's funny when people go, Oh yeah, Mephiscopheles, that's all old, you know, that's all, all original. And I'm like, for me, it was like, cause I was going to see all these ska bands in the eighties, like urban blight and, you know, Skinner box and, Second step. Uh, yeah. I mean, to me, there were like all these bands before us. So for me, yeah, I felt right. like we, you know, we were kind of like the late comers, but mm -hmm. that was yeah. 90, but it was just that kind of eighties wave. We, and the toasters, obviously that's where, I mean, I remember, I remember going to a butthole surfer show in 1985. Um, and cause I was like really into that. I mean, I was really into two-tone when it came out like in you know and I, I got the the dance craze album and specials and all that you know like in 1981 or 1980 i'd pick that up and we were really into that in like high school but i was at this butthole surfer show and my mind was being blown because i love the buttholes and dead kennedys as well that was the same show and somebody handed me a flyer that was to the toasters and it was like you know ska show toasters and it that blew my mind because I had no idea that ska could be outside of two-tone and outside of England. It didn't mm -hmm. even occur to me that not just that a, a scene existed, but like it could actually exist. I was like, what? So, and that was when we went to see them and I realized there was this whole world out there. And it was like, that was mind blowing. What do you remember that from that first time seeing the toasters? Oh God. Well, it was, it was the original guys. It was, uh, it was Lionel, and oh, what's his name? Sean. 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 Yes. Unity yeah. two. <laughs> Unity two. Oh my god. Yep. <laughs> so oh, but it was amazing. And he had like a Tommy gun and it was like it was like the specials and it was just it was it was mind blowing. I was like, you know, um and I just yeah, I just remember seeing them and loving it. It was a huge band and um Anne Helisandro was in the band, the trombone player, who Brendan and I ended up working with at Panchitos, yep. which was this Mexican <laughs> restaurant. Um who's the most beautiful woman on earth and playing. She was, she was gorgeous. She was this like Swedish model, but she was playing trombone for this band. And I was like, it was like, talk about blowing my mind. I was like, I was in love and desiring and just playing the trombone. I was like, this is, a, and ska. Now it was just, it was mind blowing. But I also, what I loved about those shows are, so you had the toasters that were like this New York thing that was, I don't know, maybe similar to kind of a madness Mm -hmm. you know, kind of style. It's like big party kind of crazy. But then you had a band like second step, 
So it was like doing a different kind of Scott, you know, it was a bit more reggae. And then you had oh, just all of them. Then you had like urban. Bo- oh, and then beat brigade. I mean, they did a different, they did a totally different kind of thing too. Yeah, you completely, know? Yeah. So, and it was cool. It was big people really different, you know? And also and what were the skadanks called before? A, were they, weren't they, didn't they, weren't they something else? And they changed. It wasn't giant step. It was something else, but it was like, um, no, I know, I know. I can't, but we, we watched them go through their, yeah. Right. They went through like that organic yeah. change where Rocker T became much more um, doing dub. And that was the funny. dance hall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dub rather. Yeah. yeah that was um, what were they before that? I don't, know. I don't know. But then all the bands that came out after that, that were, you know, like the, you know, didn't have as big an audience, you know, um, but were like some hardcore New York yeah. bands, you know. Well, we had, I mean, you had all those bands from the 80s. And then when we started playing, it kind of a lot of those bands had died, mm-hmm. and then you had new bands, so like Agent Ninety Nine and right, um, right, Inspector right. Seven, and yep. uh, and do you know who was we played with early early show was the Rabies, which oh right, right? yeah which, yeah oh, that was Vic, and that turned into the Slackers. That's right. That's the right. Slackers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was Happy, wasn't it? Happy and Vic Mush. I know Mush, because I right. And oh, it was Mush? Was it Mush? Playing trombone. Jeremy, Mush yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, but those guys we played with them at Continental Divide. Which no, he's a trumpet player. Mush is yeah, a trumpet yeah, yeah. player. What well, I was going to ask, what was Continental Divide? Oh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's it it's you're you're phrasing the question in what was Continental Divide well, is. is good because it was a it was a club that was on um on uh like a, on the corner Eighth Street and like Third Avenue and so St Mark's yeah St Mark's um and Third Avenue and we played there a few times and the last time we played there and it was w- when we got banned <laughs> it was a huge fight <laughs> it was a huge fight and a skinhead took this kid and threw him through the wall <laughs> and out onto the street <laughs> and the and the and the front wall of the club you know like sort of like there was a yard sale on the sidewalk of parts of the wall and, um, and we got banned from continental and not just, not just that, that's when they renovated, they renovated the entire place because of a Mephiscopheles show. It was hilarious. Well, there wasn't, it was, it was a window, wasn't it? It was a glass window and he got smashed through it and then they put it back up with bricks and stuff. No, they, he knocked out the wall. You, you don't remember he it knocked the kid, the kid ended up on the sidewalk and they they shut the club and they had to redo the entire front and that's when they they built the brick wall with no windows and they painted it black and that and they took the dinosaur off the roof oh yeah that was crazy um, we used to they changed it they changed the name to the continental from continental divide yeah we got banned we got banned from a few places <laughs> where else did he get banned from <laughs> cbgb's yeah because a bunch a bunch yeah. of skinheads got into a fight with hilly crystal and a couple hell's angels and beat them up <laughs> you know yeah. and so we weren't allowed to play there anymore also that club where we played with brown ploppy we had uh, oh right yeah on, on canal street yeah. on canal street what was it called the new music <laughs> new music venue? new music cafe yeah. new music cafe yeah we got banned from there see we, we had we had skinheads that used to come to our show, but New York skinheads, they were black, Hispanic, Israeli, many Asians, a lot of Asians. Asians, Yeah. Like it was like completely sharp, completely, but they were still just violent. And (laughs) anti-racist. Just violent as hell though, still. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were like, but you know, something was non, 
specific. They would beat up anybody, especially. Um, yeah. and, and we used to we used to get so many different kinds of and I think that was also something I loved about our band is like we'd get all these skinheads, we'd get all the, the rude boys and Scott, but we'd also just get random, you know, and a lot of hippies would come and down and stuff, but they would always get beaten up. I've had so I've run into so many people now they'd say, oh, man, you were in Memphis Godfleys? I was like, yeah. Oh, I got beat up at one of your shows. <laughs> and we, were, we weren't into violence, but I think we were into – we liked spiritedness. We liked rioting. I don't know, we liked chaos and stuff. So I think we – you know, a lot of bands would, like, stop if anybody fought and they'd, like, yeah. lecture the audience. And I think we would just speed up. We had fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the most chaotic show you played then? Oh, God. Uh... I mean, there were a few at the wetlands that were, you know, mayhem. Yeah. Um, we actually, until the wetlands closed, Mephiscopheles, I, I was told by someone who knew Larry Block, the guy that owned the wetlands, that we had the attendance record for the, the history of the club. And it was one show that like, it was oversold by like 30% or something. And it was a, it was a freaking zoo. And they couldn't control it, you know, because there were just too many people sure. there. And that was mayhem. That was mayhem. <laughs> and I don't remember who it was we were playing with, but might have been like an I-7 gig or something because it was all skinheads. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like it was it was chaos. Yeah. But it was really, but, really fun. We had the funniest crowd. I mean, that was like like you'd have sk skinheads and stuff, but they were it was just funny. They would be, you know, dancing on stage and just. People just bring in shit. It was just really a funny show. They had a, they were there to have a good time, you know. They were there to have a good time, and I mean, you know, it was a, it, it could get rough, but I mean, it wasn't like our shows were violent yeah. and like people were getting getting you know beat up and hurt and stuff. It my, as Michael said, it was spirited, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys uh, ha have heard our interview with Chris Gethard. But uh, he said that he was a kid and uh, he was, I think it was a wetlands gig. And you guys brought him on stage and baptized him in Satan or whatever it is you guys do to kids that you bring on stage. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. Say you love Satan. Say you love Satan. <laughs> yeah, I think we were. I think, yeah. Very yeah. formative memory for, for Chris Gethard was uh, <laughs> being, <laughs> being converted to the, uh, the, the, the religion of Satanism <laughs> through Mephiscopheles. Well, we had a lot of people coming up on stage and kids and stuff always, it was really always. funny that was part of the thing i mean so much of us was like uh, you know our shows were just like the audience and it was just like everybody was a show and i think that's also that whole thing of being part in on the joke like everybody was a part of the band it was just like this yeah we never turned people away if they wanted to come up on stage it was like come on up you know um but it's really yeah. funny that you talk about chris chris gethard because he he was part of upright citizens brigade and i was doing i was also doing improv there uh, for a while and I knew a lot of those people so there was like some kind of c connection between like improv people and um, ska and I think it was I think it's still it's it's similar in terms of that audience participation like everybody's a part of this thing it's like you can't do it alone you know it's mm -hmm. very democratic also John Daly I used to do improv with him all the time and I saw that he was on yeah, one so, of the shows which I thought mm -hmm. was really John Daly was on the show I don't think he knew that he had this connection to Mephiscopheles but uh yeah. So, what, what was your? Did you? How well did you know John Daly? I knew him really well because we were. He was actually a coach for my team. I had a small group, and um, yeah. So I used to see him all the time, and uh, so I'd go through a few different girlfriends. 
I actually, and I shot him in, cause I did some commercials and I shot him for a couple of spots I did and I used him and I used Brett Gelman, who was his partner. Um, do you know Brett Gelman? He, no, he, yeah, he, you probably do. He was the bearded guy, like the conspiracy theorist on stranger things. Oh, okay. His name was like, I think yeah. it was Maury or something. I don't know. I can't remember yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like a big, big guy now. So, but yeah, they used to do this like really offensive rap act. Awful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you remember what it was called? No. <laughs> Probably for the best. Yeah. I think I forgot yeah. what it was. Yeah. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it was like, I don't know. It was just, I forgot what it was. It's just really bad. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I want to go back a little bit and I want to talk about Shaved Pigs. Now, Brendan, this is your band. Uh, Michael, you are not in this band? No. Okay. Yeah, Michael was not. Shave Pigs was a band for a little while. I know you put out two records, some EPs. Yep. Um, did you guys tour, or was this just a New York thing? We we toured Europe twice, but... Oh. Uh, we didn't tour in the States. We played in New York city almost exclusively. We would, we would do day trips, you know, like up to Connecticut or, you know, whatever, you know, local stuff, but really we're just, we're local New York. I found uh, a maximum rock and roll review of your record. <laughs> Breakfast is served from 1987. Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, Here's the review. Rampant sarcasm and a less than tight ripping hardcore style are the trademarks on this debut LP by the shaved pigs. The shot, the song structures are not always distinctive in these simple tunes, but their cover of the Isley brothers shout, uh, is delightful. Oh, but it's entitled ah. sl- slam good album yes. cover too. <laughs> and so the album yeah. cover is a waiter serving a pig head on a platter next to some milk juice and toast yeah breakfast is served you know on the um on the second shave pigs record uh cheers Mm -hmm. there's a song called cop shot and if you listen to cop shot the opening guitar riff is the opening guitar riff of bumblebee tuna huh Um, interesting there yeah (laughs) that's where that's where the bumblebee tuna intro came from from the shaved pig song. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's got kind yeah. of a it's got kind of a heavy, heavy beginning. 
Yeah, that's that was the that was the opening of Cop Shot, the Shaped Pigs tune. <laughs> Brendan, I'm sorry. Do you do you remember why we started doing Bumblebee tuna like that? Of course. No, but do you not not just because of your connection, which you could talk about, but. Yeah. We used to do Bumblebee Tuna, where it kind of just started, yum, yum, Bumblebee, you know, we used to just do it straight. We didn't have that kind of dub opening, but we were opening for the Skadanks at Wetlands once. And we said, hey, wouldn't it be really funny if we did what we call Biddly? So we did like a faux dub. Biddly, 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 exactly. Bum. Hey! Exactly. Yeah. So we just started going, dun, 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 dun. so that we did that actually just to be part of that show as a joke. And we kept it. <laughs> and then you added that. that was a little bit of a little bit of a joke uh, aimed at Rocker T, right? Sort of, yeah, yeah, a little. Yeah. We weren't, yeah, we weren't taking the piss. It was because <laughs> it, it was just, I don't know, you know, just, we were kind of sending up the whole scene in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> but in a lot but, of ways, we, we were sending up the whole scene. Yeah, yes, bitterly, 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 bump, hey. But. Affectionately, we you know we loved all these bands. There was no competition, right? It wasn't. We weren't trying to be nasty at all, ever. I mean, we we really we were friends with everybody in the bands that we played with. You know, it's like we didn't have any we didn't have any enemies. Yeah. You know, um, there were people that didn't like Mephiscopheles because of the satanic thing. Oh yeah, um, and there were a bunch of bands that wouldn't play with us, um, but you know we didn't really care. It's we we were just like okay, whatever. You know, we had a show canceled. We were on tour. And we were playing, supposed to play Bring Him, Bring Him Young. Was, oh, right. And there was like a three-day ska fest, and we were headlining the last night. And then when we got there, they said, oh, yeah, no, there was a problem with the electricity. And, <laughs> and, right there. and they were like, one guy was just shaking his head. Yeah, that's a lie. No, that's not true. <laughs> we found a club in town. We had a great show, but it was really funny. I'm sure, like, come on, could you imagine some guy on, like, the community, you know, outreach thing? He's like, uh, so it says here that they're a satanic band. Is that true, Elmer? You know, he was like, uh. <laughs> Well, I think that that's really funny because it's not like you guys were named the Billiards. Uh, <laughs> you were Memphis and it was uh, right there in the title when they booked you. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you know, it's funny. You have to. This was also what I thought was funny about our thing. So we're the satanic man, but with this really kind of a bit of an obscure intellectual reference, <laughs> like artistic reference. Yeah, so, you know, which I loved. So you got these skinheads going, yeah, I'll go and see Mephiscopheles. You know, it's a, it, it's a portmanteau <laughs> on Fausts. You know, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I mean, it's a reoccurring theme throughout history. You know? <laughs> Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how could they not know? Yeah, I don't yeah. Know. Why, how can they not Darn. know? I guess maybe they're not well read. Is that what we're yeah, getting exactly. at? Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, speaking of Bumblebee Tuna, Brendan, you knew um, a woman who was in the original ad as a kid or something, right? Isn't that how the song started? Yeah, I was friends with this girl, Louise Ippolito. She was in the first band I was in that ever played a public show, you know, like for an audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, she sang in this band. It was called nightlight and we were a cover band in high school. You know, I was probably 16 at the time, but she, her parents ran a recording studio, a commercial recording studio called Nimbus nine. It was on 59th street and Broadway. Um, and they did jingles. It, they did almost exclusively did jingles from like the, the seventies and eighties. Her mom sang on them. Her 
stepfather who, you know, the mom and the stepfather owned the studio. The stepfather was named Jeff Daking. He was a drummer from that band, the Blues Magoos. Um, the 60s, they had a hit with Tobacco Road and all. Um, and he took his money and he turned it into a recording studio. And his mom, I mean, her mom sang on like, you know, Coke is it. She was the voice for New York Telephone. There was a jingle went New York Telephone. That was her mom, you know, like that kind of thing. She was she was like all over the jingles. And so this guy who I knew was a, an advertising creative named John Emerling. Um, John Emerling was the the creative that composed the Bumblebee Tuna song. And then he went to the, you know, to Louise um, and Jeff and was like, I want to record this, but I need a bunch of kids. And so they got a bunch of kids and Louise, the daughter, the, the mom was also named Louise. We called her Big Louise and Little Louise. So she got Little Louise on the on the recording and Louise had a 45 of it. And we used to go to her house after school and we would spin this record that she was on, you know, and uh, it was it, became a song that the band um nightlight uh played um you know just as a goof and then memphiscopolis played it just as a goof yeah brendan i used to just fuck around playing it hey brendan was she in the commercial with the with the with not she wasn't one of the kids with the balloon no they they, none of those yeah those kids were actors they they were not they didn't sing in the jingle they just looked cute yes and they carried a balloon they (laughs) they held a balloon i grew up i grew up like worshiping that. I love that commercial. I want it to be. It's a great commercial. I mean, I still remember it from, yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and the, you know, my baloney has a first name, <laughs> you know, the actual Oscar Mayer commercial. Can you talk about the, the decision to have that really long outro on Bumblebee Tuna recording? Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> I, it, I, so, yeah. so anyone who hasn't heard the song, uh, it, it goes acapella. It just goes on and on and on. Yum, yum, yum. Bumblebee, bumblebee, tuna over and over and over and over again. Way past the point where you think it's going to end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I, can, I, I know exactly what, what we did is we went to the studio. We were, you know, we recorded it. We had us singing. You know, we did, okay, we're just going to do different parts. And, you know, we, we were doubling our voices and doing different parts and just like layering it. And the idea was we were just going to do a fade out. We weren't, we had no idea. We just figured we'd fade out appropriately um but we recorded all this just so we had options and we were going to do stuff but we just when we ended up mixing it we just kept playing it and like we're just sitting there and the sound guy the mixing guy was just like oh this is hysterical we just the longer it went (laughs) the more we were laughing and we're like okay we got to cut off they're like no no just just let it go let it go (laughs) go, so we really literally I, I, there probably it probably was more there because it does fade out eventually but it goes on forever so I just remember us doing that. We all like just we were pissing ourselves. We just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> just going on oh, and on and on and on and on. Which was like to me, which was like, I was like, this is like hell. This is like literally being that's why I loved it. Cause like to me, the band wasn't like we're not worshiping Satan. We just are we're recreating <laughs> hell. It's just like the you know, cacophonous horns and just but I just remember one thing. So as we were mixing it and just we're not mixing it, just letting it go, the guy just looked at he was like, Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's the last song on the album. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yep, yeah, we can't, you can't put that anywhere other than the last song. <laughs> so, yeah. You can't have that be the opening track. <laughs> be your last. If you want anybody to hear the rest of the record, no, of course. Not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> yeah. So you guys met, you guys mentioned uh, Panchitos before uh, where I think the two of you guys <laughs> met, right? 
Yeah. Yes. So you guys work there. Who? Uh, there was another person you worked with. Would you mind mentioning their name? Yeah, sure. Anne no, 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 another no, person. Know I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Can we talk about Anne again, please? <laughs> She's the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> Anne, if you're out there and you're still in your 20s. Um, <laughs> never mind. So... So mentioning this other person. Who's this other person that you used to work with? <laughs> so, okay. So his name was, was it John Stewart Leibowitz at the time. Wasn't it John? <laughs> wasn't it Leibowitz? Yeah, it was John Stewart. He was, he was another, another waiter there. And um, he was just getting his start um, as a comedian and he was actually performing. So if people don't know, you know, exactly where this is. So this is in the, the village in New York and it's, it's right. It's on this one street called McDougal and right kind of below it, like next to it is, was this really famous comedy club. It still is called comedy cellar. And it's where Louis CK it's like at the beginning of the Louis show. If you could talk about him anymore, the Louis show that mm-hmm. you could, you would be going there and pretty much Chris rock and just every famous comedian, Jerry Seinfeld. They, they was, it was sort of like this, you know, the brick wall. Yeah. Um, but he was doing there and he was just like, Oh yeah, I'm just, just trying to get my start. And just, we were like, Oh, well, good luck, John. That's great. And you know, he also, you know, he would go out after every shift at night, you know, he would hit one of the open mics, you know, so he'd go to the olive tree, you know, to all those other places that, you know, had open mics for comedians. Cause there were a whole bunch of them. Well, the comedy cellar is the olive tree that's under, underneath it. Oh, was it the olive? Oh, it was the, that was it. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Then yeah. Yeah. yeah, All right. Right. But then, you know, I don't know. Did you ever go see him perform back when you guys worked with him? No, no. <laughs> so he no. never came and saw Mephiscopheles. He never came that? to see Mephiscopheles. Yeah. Exactly. He never okay. came to see us. So it's fine. Yeah. So you know, I'll tell you the the funny the funny thing about um about uh you know the John Stewart thing is, and I don't know if I, if you guys have heard this story, but you know. Panchitos was a wonderful place to work. You know, it's like it was run by these two hippies and the the guy that owned it was this old hippie who owned the building. And it was very generous. You know, it's like you could go there and eat anytime you wanted. You could bring a friend and they would feed your friend for free. They had beer for the staff specifically for after your shift. You could hang out and have a few beers. But then the two hippies that, you know, were the managers of it decided that they were going to move to San Francisco. So the owner brought in this burnt out ex Wall Street lawyer named Bond um, to manage the restaurant. And when she came in, everything changed. And one of the major changes was that if you had a walkout table, you had you were responsible for covering the bill Dude. for the walkout table. And Panchitos was set up such that like a waiter could be in the kitchen for like five minutes the, and the the front end was like, you know, uh, it was like 150 feet away, you know? So you were away from your tables up front for a long time and they happened to be the ones by the door. So they were the ones that walked out. Oof. And Michael knew that this was not legal. And so he contacted the Department of Labor and the Department of Labor sent a poster and they were like, hang this in the green room. It informs the staff that it's illegal to, you know, to charge waiters for, you know, servers for a walkout. And so Michael took it to like whatever the Kinko's of the time was. I don't think Kinko's existed yet and had it blown up to like four, four by three, <laughs> you know, and he hung this poster 
in the break room. And the next day, John Stewart, Michael and I show up to work and Bon Koga's standing there and she goes, I want to talk to you guys. And we're like, uh oh. And she goes, I don't I don't care which one of you did it, but I know it was one of you. You're all fired. <laughs> and so the three of us got fired at the same time. Wow. And it was all oh, thanks to Michael. Sorry, Michael sorry. got John Stewart. Michael got John Stewart fired from Panchitos. <laughs> That's why he never came to see us. <laughs> if John Stewart ever writes a memoir, a memoir, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if yeah. his his getting fired at Panchitos with the two guys from Mephiscopheles. <laughs> yeah, that better be in there. Yeah, he'll, and I, I wouldn't have been a famous comedian. If it wasn't, if it weren't for this moment, actually, I did see him perform. I was at actually an ad show because I ended up having a big career in advertising and I was at like this big ad. They have these like kind of shows and award shows for the year. And he was like, he was speaking at it. Um, Well, he was doing like, he's the MC and doing comedy. It was brilliant. And then I saw him in the hallway and I said, Hey John, how are you doing? It was like, he was like, he looked at me. He was like, I know you. And I was like, yeah, we used to work together at Panchitos. And he was like, Oh, remember that Nazi Bond? I hated her. (laughs) I swear to God. Yeah, yeah. So it was really funny. So I guess these little things you never forget. Right. (laughs) So Mephiscopheles begins before, uh, during, or after your time at Panchitos. Well, you know, Michael and I have actually been talking about this a lot lately because this, you know, the second Shave Pigs tour in Europe, which was really the thing that caused the band to like split up. You know, we, I have rehearsal tapes that were, you know, cassettes that we would use to record rehearsals that have dates on them that were from t- a point of time when the Shave Pigs was still together. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that there was some overlap between the two. We've never been able to come to a date where we really like, Mephiscopheles became a thing. It was it was definitely eighty nine. We were definitely playing together, and we were. Yeah, together. yeah, you know, but it might have been a little earlier than that. Mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, because we have like Mike Berger. You got the horns that were like way before you know Osho McCabe and uh, Greg Robinson. Yeah. The the horns that were there before them was Dave Doris, Mike Berger, that English kid James that played. Uh, trumpet yeah rick sanford the trombone player and rick sanford was the dude that played trombone on the demo um but mccabe and osho were there at that point and that was like 90 right so <sighs> yeah because well what what we did is we started brendan and i started playing together just like the two of us and then we'd bring in like a friend yes. and then we'd bring in somebody else so we just kept kind of playing and trying to drag in people and we were just trying to get things going but it dragged on for a while and we get interest and we we yeah it took a long time you know and i think that the thing that really turned us into a band was when michael put an ad in the village voice and vitell cherry answered it you know and that was when we went from being like playing in the bedroom you know and occasionally going into a rehearsal studio but michael and i lived together you know so like andre and brian would come over and we'd sit and we'd write songs and, you know, we'd hang out in the apartment, you know, drink beer and like smoke pot and like, you know. Yeah, we had like Doomsday was drag, you know, we had like that was the first song we were playing. You know? yeah, <laughs> so that dragged yeah. on in different forms for, you know, so we had them. So then we brought brought everybody in. But that was, yeah, that was like 89, 88 because we were living in the East Village. Yeah. We were living right by Tompkins Square Park. And it was the summer of the riots where the police took over. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, it was a really like <laughs> we were living in like Beirut pretty much the real turning point for the band which you know 
changed us from being like, you know, some, something we were doing in our, you know, basement to like being a real band was when we got Vitel Cherry as the bass player, you know, and then we got serious. Well, cause we had a, we had a steady bass break. Cause then we had a, we had a, right. we had a rhythm section, like a steady rhythms. It was more of just repetition. Yeah. And then Dave Doris, and he was a guy that I knew from high school that, you know, I mean, I'm, cause I'm originally from Long Island and I was actually going to see the scoff laws before they were playing, you know, but we, I was living in the city and I was like, you guys should come into the city and play ska, play more of that, the good stuff, you know, cause they were playing everything it was, well, they were still the new Bohemians. And, uh, oh, yeah. we got this guy, Dave to play with us and he, he actually wrote like a lot of the lines and yeah, he did. Dave Doris wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah. I like, we were just having fun. We used to listen to like, Oh God, all sorts of, you know, also sorts of wild stuff and a lot of classical and like weird stuff. And that's where kind of a lot of the atonal kind of, you know, horn stuff came from. It was more kind of mocking that. So Doomsday is your first song you write. Um, can you kind of discuss your approach to playing ska? Because it's different than other bands of that era, but it also seems there's a very specific idea behind how you approach this music. Yeah, it was the specials. I mean, if you talk about the rhythm section, it's like the way that I played the guitar for that was really just because of listening to like Roddy Byers, you know, and, and playing like Roddy Byers. I mean, you sound so much like Johnny Thunders too. I think it's like, well, right. I mean, <laughs> it, in terms of influences, I still, I still play the exact same thing that I've been playing for 40 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's true. I mean, if you listen to the Barbicide record, it's like I'm playing the same stuff I was playing in 1990 and I'm playing the same stuff I was playing in 1980. Get a guitar lesson, buddy. No, but I mean, it's like you can tell the continuity, you know, in especially with me and you, you know, with Barbicide. And I'm not I know that that's not the subject of this, but, you know, it's, you know, it's like you can hear it. I think I think so much of it. And I think like I was talking to you about this, Aaron, a long time ago when we were playing is just. I think so much of it is like you could have intention of what you want to play and what you're going to play. And so much of it is just your just what comes out of you from the life of you. So I think we kind of like, I think we wanted to play ska. Um, you know, obviously I think I was really also, I really loved Fishbone. That was like another revelation moment. I was like, wow, this is American ska. And it can, it can evolve from the specials. And, you know, I was also listening to a lot of like studio one stuff, but we couldn't play any of those styles specifically, but I was just like, <laughs> but I like the idea of like, Oh, let's play ska. Let's play, you know, like punky and let's play enthusiastically. And that's just, you know, like, like I didn't have the kind of control to be like, I'm going to play this style. Or I'm going to play this. So it was just sort of what came out. And it was just, I think it was just hundred percent, you know, and yeah. I think, you know, I, I think we, even when we've tried to play like, oh, like when we played like on our, our demo tape, we have Shame and Scandal. So we're playing like a an old school ska song, but it just comes out kind of our enthusiasm and just our natural flow. Um, so it's a bit you know loose, I guess. With, but with Mephiscopheles during the, the era that you guys are in the band, you always have the ska drums. And I think the ska drums was kind of a key component for you. In terms of being calling yourself a ska band, allowing the music to evolve and do different things, but sort of keeping that basic rhythm connected to ska and not going into other directions. Absolutely. I mean, that was something I was really, I felt really, really strongly about because I was like, okay, because we were selling ourselves, and it was also what we wanted to be was satanic ska. So it was like we are ska. 
And a lot of bands, and I, I love them, they're all different, but a lot of bands were going, okay, we're ska plus funk. We're ska plus rap. We're ska plus this. And we're heavy metal. And the thing was like, for me, like a lot of the bands, when they would like go into a different style, the rhythm would be different. And I felt like suddenly the ska part was gone and I would like be standing there waiting for it to come again. I'm like, oh, now it's good. So I never wanted to be like that. To me, it was like, well, I felt like if we keep the rhythm ska, then instruments can go there. You know, they could do whatever. They could lay on track. Do whatever you want. Right. But, you know, it's still got a beat you can dance to and it doesn't suddenly make me go, okay, this is the mosh part, you know? And, um, and it's something like, and something I, uh, not that we're <laughs> comparing ourselves to the Scatolites, but what I think is amazing about the Scatolites is like, there's always somebody skanking. I mean, when Lloyd Nib, a lot of his rhythms aren't necessarily sky in terms of beep, bop, you know, kind of to cat, to cat, to cat, you know, but he would like be doing more other complicated things, but then the horns are going bap, bap, bap. So there's always somebody kind of doing that, which keeps the ska, which I think is like. Which is something that we always did too. And it was that principle, you know, we always did that. Yeah. And it's, I guess I was, I just wanted to be a ska band that would have different influences, but keeping the style always ska. And I, I always felt like it was cheating when like you'd go, now we're doing funk or doing, you know, at least for us, it's just not what we wanted to do. But it seemed like if you keep if you could keep that ska rhythm or a dance rhythm like that, then you could have cacophonous horns. You could have other things on top of it, but you could still dance to it. So to me, that was kind of the I don't know, just what I wanted to keep. It's also I couldn't play any other styles. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of keeping the rhythm rooted in ska, but allowing the music to go into to not sound like traditional ska, I think that was a unique take from that era because it seems like bands either were like okay, we're going to play ska and we're also going to try to sound like we came up in Jamaica in the 60s or they were like, no, we're going to go way out there. We're going to try to be take fishbone elements and do everything and not really be traditional ska in any way. But you guys had this middle ground that was, I feel like not a lot of bands in that time were doing that. I don't think anybody cared to do that. You know, people were, you know what I mean? It's like people, you like you said, you know, it's like they, you either we're a trad band and you, you know, you bought a 1965, you know, tweed, you know, twin reverb, you know, and had a, you know what I mean? Like you matched equipment and you You recorded with one mic in the room. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, or else, you know, you're, you're like a real big fish and you know, you're doing that, you know? Um, and I get it. I, I totally understand. Like, look at what was successful, you know? Um, but nobody really wanted to be that devoted to the upbeat, you know, and I guess, you know, we did, whether it was intentional or not. But I, th- I think it's, and it's something for me, and I think it's, I think it's hard, you know, and I think it's just something, I don't know, you know, if, if all bands go through, but it's like, I guess for me, it was really fascinating. It's like, and I know this is, and I'm not posing this as a question, but it's a rhetorical question, you know, but it's like, you're always like, well, what is ska? You know, and I know that's like the big thing is this guy, is that guy, is that ska music? You know, and I think for us, it was like, well, how do we still keep it what we think is ska, you know, keeping in the style that still doesn't, but ska doesn't have to sound trad. Like, I love trad bands. Like, I love like Hepcats, one of my favorite of that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 100%. And Scofflaws. And like, I love that. LGB. Like, we certainly you know. couldn't do that. And we weren't feeling that. So we were like, well, how do we keep it ska, keep the style ska, but you know, but expand it. So it's still Scott, but 
it's bringing in other things. And I think that's, I think it's really tricky. And, and I think a lot of bands will go, Oh yeah, we're ska, but we're, you know, we bring in other styles like, but to me, as soon as you go to other rhythms and you say, you know, it's suddenly it's like, well, it's just different parts of, of, I don't know, you know, it's like ska and then it's funk and there's whatever. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's one of the you know going back to what I'd said earlier about the people we brought into it, you know it's like the horns that we brought in, you know particularly Osho and McKay because Greg had played with a, a ska band, you know he had some experience in you know in the style before he played with us, but Rick Sanford did not, you know, and McCabe did not, and Osho did not, you know, and them being allowed to do their thing on top of what you and I were doing. And then Vitell coming in there playing the way he played, mm -hmm. you know, was a whole like, you know, you're taking like antagon almost antagonistic styles, you know, and putting them on top of each other. And somehow it comes out working well, you know. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. With Doomsday, when it's still like an early demo version, this song somehow gets onto a local commercial for Crunch Fitness. Well, that was, that was, yeah, that was actually that was through me because my friends were were doing an ad for it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's almost surprising that there's not more ads with uh, Mephiscopheles songs. I, we've I've tried. I've tried. I've tried. Do you know how many? I mean, even recently, I was like, you know, I've got, I've made so many other bands very rich, and I was like, hey, how about this song? And the client's like, nah, nah, no, nah, it doesn't. <laughs> I got the Budos band on to something. I've tried other things, but I've tried. Trust me, um, they just don't go for it. What was the biggest pitch that you you would have liked to have land that you didn't? Oh God, oh man, I think for. I did a I did a spot for Tin Cup Whiskey, and it was like it needed something, and I think it was it was like this building thing, and I think I used satanic debris for it. But actually, and I did oh, I forgot something else, but I don't know who knows. You know, it's like I've, yeah. I've tried a few. I've definitely tried to hit them up with uh, a few different things I brought. I've, I did something with the Budos band and a couple of others. Did you ever reach out to Bumblebee Tuna? <laughs> no, they reached out to us. <laughs> did they seriously? Yeah, they did. Yeah. What happened? They asked us to re-record it, and someone in the band didn't. You know, someone in the band said no, absolutely not. Well, because it was like there was a young kid that was running it for a while. I think he went to jail. But remember that there was like some kid. Yeah, yeah, like in his twenties yeah. or something. Or he was like somehow he became CEO, and then of Three Diamond after the merger, right? and then and they asked us to re-record it for the jingle and we turned them down yeah well they said like, which i i wanted to do it well the, but, the kid know. was saying uh, well we heard from somebody they said oh yeah they'd have these like big like ceo meetings or these big meetings where it was like for the company and then when he would come in like you'd be like running up they'd be playing like bumblebee tuna like and like everybody's going yeah 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 
okay, so you don't have to say who this person was in the band, but what was their reasoning for not doing this? It was selling out. I yeah. mean, you guys are already advertising for Bumblebee. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I get no it. Problem. I get it. I had no problems. I would have had no problem re-recording <laughs> it too, because we would have been able to retire on the money, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's funny though. We put it on the album, but we couldn't, even though it's our own version, we couldn't put like who, you know, the publishing rights because it's like, no, of course not. Because it's like yeah. the publisher doesn't even own it. And the company owns it. So it's sort of like, yeah, it's not public domain, but it kind of is. And so, I don't know. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. It falls under. I regret not, you know, us not having done a commercialized version of that song. So, you know, but, sure. you know, say levy. Yeah. So doomsday, also is also on God bless Satan and you guys shoot a video for it and you get it on MTV before there's really an actual like sort of ska boom in, in the U S like just before that. Yeah, that was, that was crazy. Well, I, I, I had a friend that I was doing theater with and I wanted to make a video, but video, like this was 1997. So he had just, he had um, a 16 millimeter camera film and he would have to crank it every 15 seconds that's right. So yeah. so we shot little 15 seconds. I just said, what I wanted him to do is I just said, come down to the show, you know, come down to like so some of those shows of Wetlands. And um, it was, oh God. I'm trying the Limelight. Limelight. He sh- that was at the Limelight where he shot on the stage. Well, we also, also, uh, also Wetlands. We shot at a couple of places. And um, what we pieced that together, then we shot some stuff at my apartment with Andre and, uh, in the dollhouse and the chicken. And then we went to Chinatown. They used to have this tic-tac-toe playing chicken. The tic-tac-toe chicken. Long gone. <laughs> but we filmed that and yep. we just pieced it together. That was in 97. It would have been before that because uh, like it would have been 94 or 95. Yeah. 95. So 97. But I think it got onto MTV later. I don't know. No, because uh, 97, Ska, Ska is fully on MTV at that point. Yeah, because we were on the album came out in 94. So maybe it was 95. Maybe. I thought it was something. Anyway, so yes, we had this video, and um, I had it. I was kept was putting on like half inch tapes, a three quarter inch. Yeah, it was three quarter inch. These huge videos. I was just sending it to places, and um, and I sent it to MTV, um, and it was like at the time it was just like it sent them the video, and I was like, because I, I found out, I like called them up. I was like, how do you get a video on? And they were like, well, just send us a video and a letter, and we review things like every you know, Tuesday morning, and then we'll let you know if, if it gets picked up. So we're like, okay. So I sent them this video. I had it messengered to them. Um, and it was like, I don't know, maybe I sent it on a Monday and I, you know, I got this woman's name. I just, you know, wrote her, uh, or I not didn't write her. It was no internet. And I just, I called and I just said, Oh, you know, Hey, this, you know, we're sending this thing down. I messengered it. And then I think right before Oh, and we also we got picked up in a uh, New York Times article. There's like a whole article by Neil Strauss. Neil Strauss, right? Uh, who ended up he had a whole, whole life of his own, but he ended up writing this article. And- he had a career uh, later. He had a career later as a pickup artist. He wrote the book The Game, penetrating the secret society of pickup artists, which is so funny. <laughs> and they were all like magicians, right? They were like, but it was like, yeah, he has his his whole story is crazy. Yeah, so we sent in. So we wrote this article, and it was like a front page of like the entertainment or arts and leisure of New York Times, and it just said, "said the sound of New York, uh, the sound of New York, ska, ska, yes, ska." And it was like we got a quote in it and stuff like that. And then 
So there was this like this, you know, huge article. So I copied the article and then I sent it to this woman. <laughs> so while they were making the decision, like, you know, this article that came out and then they said, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're going to put you, you know, I got a call and said, we're going to be, you're going to be on MTV. You're going to be on 120 minutes with Matt Pinfield. Um, and <laughs> it was also Jerry Cantrell. He was interviewing him. Um, and you see just Matt Pinfield going, now it's uh, their, their debut album, Mephiscopheles with God bless Satan. And you just see Jerry Cantrell like laughing. So which is really funny. <laughs> but then we lucked yeah. out. I think a week later, Rancid were was on were guests, yeah. and um, they got they uh, they got to pick what videos they wanted, and they picked our video, so we got it on like two weeks in a row. So we really lucked out. So there were a lot of things that were just fortuitous that were happening at the same time, and and then MTV picked up snippets of it and used it in like House of Style and Cribs and all these other shows, um, which was great, you know. Yeah, and it's it's just really interesting. Just you know, I mean, just with things are going because obviously Rance had just had their hit, you know, but yeah, Outcome the Wolves came out at that time, right? That was Outcome the Wolves. But you're right; it's 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 all before ska kind of. Got, I mean, in my mind, it's still like I feel like by the time I left the band, we left. It was like ska ska hadn't really gone. Like there was some, you know, Rance had had some national hits, but it hadn't it hadn't had that blow up that that kind of real big fish. Uh, you know, that blow up at the end of the nineties yet. So yeah. for me, yeah. When save Ferris had come on Eileen and you got, you know, bands that were like actually charting and mainstream charts, yeah. boss tones with the, uh, um, you know, the knock on wood, uh, yeah. you know, person that I get, that I get. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, that was, that was when it peaked really, you know? Um, yeah. And I was fine. Like I was, I was just psyched to be on 120 minutes and I know, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I was just like, I don't know. You know, I, I was just, I, I think I was never, I don't know. I don't know about you, Brendan. I was like, I was glad we were touring and we were playing, but I was never looking for that like huge stardom thing. I think well, this was just great. I just wanted to keep it going. It was fun. Yeah. We're just having fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, we thought like just from the beginning, as we said, like people were saying, no, you can't call yourself Mephiscoffice. You gotta call yourself the billiards. Like they were giving us like marketing <laughs> advice, but the idea of like you're not gonna go anywhere, we were like, we don't care. Like this was this was a joke from the beginning or a satanic, you know, ska band. It was like this wasn't supposed to have any success. So the fact that we got gigs in the city and we got popular there, and then we could got got some tours and went to Europe and went to Hawaii, you know, we were like, I was shocked, you know, del- yeah. delighted. And we got to, you know, we got to tour with some amazing bands, you know, like great people, you know, um, it was, it was really, it was absolutely worth it. Now I want to talk about people reacting to the band in a negative way, the satanic element, what religious people, I know people have mailed you chick tracts, right? That's happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. No water in hell. (laughs) (laughs) We actually put out a chick track. We did. Yeah, for, yeah. for the first album. We made these things, we we're handing them out. And it just said yeah. on the front cover, it just said, You say you love Satan, but do you really? And it was like <laughs> it was like the Satanist chick track. And it was like, if you yeah. really do them buy this album, you know. So we used to get so much stuff to our P.O. box, you know, from people repent now kind of stuff. But I remember there were only a couple instances where people actually actively came at us. Okay, let's hear them. One was a band we played with in Providence at the living room, and I don't remember the name of them, but they were like, they were a reggae band, like a Jamaican reggae band. 
And they were so offended by the fact that they were put up with us with a satanic ska band that they started chanting in the middle of one of their songs, Satan, go home, you know, and <laughs> over and over and over and over again. It was, it was, it was really, really bad. Um, we definitely had people, um, you know, well, we, we played in Chicago with, um, this was a Buzzcocks tour and we were playing with that band that did that jingle, um, with the blonde, the lead singer, woman, blonde woman, lead singer, um, letters to Cleo. Uh, we were playing at, at Cafe Metro, Cabaret Metro in Chicago with Letters to Cleo, the Buzzcocks, Mephiscopheles. And apparently, I didn't see this, but people were telling me that there were Christian protesters out front and that they had blocked in Letters to Cleo's bus and the bus pulled out and hit one of them or something oh. bad happened. <laughs> they hit one of the Christians with a sign. <laughs> and... um. And in Florida, once in a while, you get, you know, like people would come up and go, this isn't funny, you know, that kind of thing. But that wasn't really meaningful. But the Chicago one was the only time I remember like an organized, you know, come at us, you know. There's a, there was one very, very well-known 90s ska band that uh, refused to play with you, right? Oh, yes. Sure. Yes. There were a couple, I think. Do you want to say their name? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean. You've mentioned them already. We, we have. <laughs> Um, oh yes, well, we, we have mentioned. I, I have to say, <laughs> like I'm not 100 percent that this is true. So this was kind of through somebody that we heard about it that we tried okay. to. So it might be true. It might. Okay, so we'll we'll take that we'll take that into consideration. <laughs> this is a little bit of a gossip uh, element yeah. to it. Okay, but anyway, the you know, it, it, yeah, it was Hepcat. Hepcat wouldn't play with us because one of the guys in the band was a Christian. You know what? I respect that. To be honest, I, you know, it's like I stick to your principles. You know, if you don't want to play with us, that's fine. You know, no one was mad about it. You know what I mean? It's like it was totally cool. You know, there's plenty of there's plenty of bands in the sea. You know, we'll play with somebody else. And so we did. But I think it's also the way we did the band. We did the joke kind of dry. You know, we weren't like this is a big goofy thing. We weren't trying to make it like you know, like a big goofy satanic thing. We were like, no, no, you know, I think we played it pretty straight. Mm-hmm. And that's also yeah. to me what very what made, straight. What, yeah. What, what made it great, you know, what, so it never felt like a joke. It was just like, no, we're, yeah. And I think there was, there was some real, you know, some truth to it. Not that we're worshiping Satan, but I think we're worshiping, you know, kind of a high spirited trickster evil within I mean, they, we always kept them guessing. You had to keep people guessing. You know, people would be like, "Are you serious?" Like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, no, really. I mean, people would would do that, and that's I would absolutely respond that way. Like, yeah, a hundred percent. Well, do you know what? Do you yeah. know, I mean, one person. <laughs> like, there's only one person that I know that like it bothered, and he said so on stage. He <laughs> was, and it was Tommy McCook from the Scavalites. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we yes. got up there, and he was like. He was like, oh, that's mepha ridiculous. Yeah, he called us mepha ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Mepha ridiculous, yeah. So. And re- mepha ridiculous. Yeah, so really. But you know what? <laughs> Whatever. No, it's, you it know? is fine. It's, it's an honor. And Again, a- you know, I, I, respect, I respect people's right to object, you know? Yeah. It's great. Go ahead. You know, I don't care. Well, actually, somebody loved it. We remember in Basque, Brendan, we went to Basque. They came, they came up and this guy went. In Bilbao. We were in Bilbao. Bilbao right? And he went, went, 
He went, uh, do you guys? And we were playing this. Yeah, we were playing this beautiful Art Deco theater. And our rider on that tour was great. It had a, a, a meal, like a hot meal before the show. And, you know, or the promoters had to give us like 20, 20 bucks in the local currency. This was pre-Euro, you know. So they would have to give us like, you know, 40 francs or, you know, like 40 guilders or whatever. And uh, instead, so most of these promoters would have like their grandma come and make us dinner. And so, you know, it was the food on that tour was incredible because the promoters didn't want to lay out the cash. It was cheaper to have grandma come and cook a pot of spaghetti, you know, than it was for them to, you know, sure. like pay us. So um, we're playing in this beautiful Art Deco theater in Bilbao. And this is at a time when um, when that, that the terrorist group, I think it was ETA, was the the Basque separatist group that was, you know, bombing in Madrid at the time. Um, and it was a very hot time. You know, in fact, when we were in, in Bilbao, there had been an incident in, in Madrid like that, you know, in the in the last day or two. Maybe it was in Barcelona, but something had happened recently. So the the city was on high alert and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like and there were a couple things that happened. The first thing is when when uh, Richie, when Richie from the, the Scofflaws, we were playing with the Scofflaws, comes out on stage, he goes, hello, Spain. <laughs> and the place sort of like. You know that scene in Animal House where they walk into the uh, the Dexter Lake Club and the and the record player stops, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah, it was sort of like that, you know, because it was like, it's not Spain, bro, and you don't say Spain to the Basque people. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're having our dinner and we're at this like beer hall table in the attic of this beautiful Art Deco theater. It's like an upstairs sort of kitchen, right? And... um. I'm sitting next next to this like 80 year old guy and, you know, he starts chatting with me. He's like, you know, he tells me that he's the manager of this theater and he's been the manager since World War Two. And, you know, he loves this. And like and he goes, and so you are a satanic band. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, we're a satanic band. He goes, good. In Basque, we love Satan. <laughs> and he goes on and he goes on to tell me that. The Basque people were matriarchal until the Spanish got there during the Inquisition, and they forced them to adopt Catholicism. And he goes, "And we hate the church, and the women are still in charge." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was great. It was really funny. Yeah, so, to cut a long story short, the band is huge, huge in Basque. Mm, <laughs> we sold fifty records <laughs> on the market and Corsica. That's it. Right. But anyway, that was that was a funny story. So God bless Satan, your first record. Um I wanna ask you a little bit about Victor Rice's role. I think he 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 wasn't technically the producer, but he was involved in a production yeah. kind of kind of role. Yeah, very much. Yeah. He was the engineer. He he and um what was the guy's name that engineered it? Bob Stander. But right, Bob. Yes, um, they engineered it together. They both sat at the board the entire time, and Victor functioned in the role of a producer. He was really kind of guiding us and kind of helped us. Mm -hmm. But that was the first. That was sort of you know that's when we recorded it, and he he was just giving us you know kind of wanted us to be us. So he kind of acted in that role uh, very much in kind mm -hmm. of the recording. Um, but then we went back. He had played with us. Yeah. He knew us so well, he played with you us know, from playing with us. Yeah. He would play bass in the first show. Yeah. You know, and we recorded that live, but, and he also like, 
don't know, he just gave us some advice and just he kind of like just really support and really kind of helped us make it ourselves, you know. He enabled Michael to insert all the like silly sound effects and do <laughs> the, the, you know, which the boings and that kind of thing. Yeah, tons of, I love oh, yeah. that. I love putting all that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we did that. And yeah, he, you know, then we mixed it at that studio. But then I think when we came back, we were like, oh, it's not sounding as big as we wanted it to, you know? Yeah. Um, it was sounding great, but it was sounding, I think we just wanted it to sound, you know, grander and bigger. Um, not heavy metal-ish, but just like more like an, uh, I don't know, just bigger. Um, so then we, we ended up doing some stuff. Wall of sound, yeah, more of a wall so of we just, sound. You know, that's yeah. what we look for. And I, I, feel, I feel like with like with a lot of the, like opposed to like the Studio One style, that was all minimalist. We were like maximalist. We're like, how do we make this bigger and huger, like an orchestra? Um, and then we ended up, that's where we ended up um, connecting with Bill Laswell um, and going to Greenpoint Studios. And, um, you know, so... That's why Bill Laswell ended up getting the producer credit, but we gave Victor spiritual leader, spiritual. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Spiritual. Which I, you know, I kind of, I don't think I realized at the time I should have put him down as producer. I feel bad. I feel yeah. like we kind yeah. of, you know, cause I don't think I realized I was like, no, this is actually really important. And you know, what he gave the band was so much. He really contributed yes. so much 100%. to it. And, the, and Victor's just pure love and pure love of music and love of, individualism so you know but he was like yeah he it wouldn't have been the same without him absolutely he was he was absolutely instrumental to the way that that album came out yeah i think we should have given him producer credit because he did function as a producer and lots of albums have more than one producer yeah exactly yeah but we gave it to bill laswell because we're whores and we just want, <laughs> we wanted to impress people we're clout we're, we're clout chasers <laughs> yeah it's just anything because hey look we take what we can get when we can take it you know? okay so sometime after the release of the record you guys go on tour with guar and letters to cleo yes yeah <laughs> no the buzzcocks and letters to cleo that's a little bit later yeah that was a little later but um with Guar, Guar okay. was just us in Guar. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it seems perfect. It seems perfect to me that um, you guys went on tour with Guar, but I'm almost surprised that it actually happened because that just seems like one of those like, man, <laughs> this would be the perfect tour. Mephiscopheles and Guar. <laughs> Too bad nobody ever does these kind of things. But you guys got that tour. That was an interesting and chaotic tour. In that, like, when we would walk out, people would be like, "Fuck you, Guar. We want you know." But then by the time we were done, people, you know, seemed to, we were, we were actually able to convert a lot of people, you know, um, and the tour was an amazing, amazing experience and a lot of fun. And I think that, you know, it really helped us and I hope it helped Guar too, you know? Yeah, that was, it was, it was wild because we did get people on our side, you know? It's a funny crossover of music. Yeah. Yes. But you had to earn them at that, on that tour. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. It was definitely. it was not a ska crowd, exactly. Yeah. Like, what are you gonna do? Throw blood at me? <laughs> you know, it's like oh, we're playing. <laughs> now the show in Detroit was uh overrun by Nazi skinheads. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, that was amazing. What happened? All right, so it was the only venue on the entire tour that served beer in glass, naturally, right? And we're playing at I think it was a state theater. I think it was called, I don't remember the name of the venue, but it was a big venue outside. The show was sponsored by a local radio station. So you had a DJ, you know, emceeing in between the bands, introducing bands and 
you know, giving away prizes and whatever, you know, the DJ kind of stuff. And the venue held about 4,000 people. And when we came out, um, you know, somebody had pointed out actually backstage was like, check this out. Look at these guys. These guys don't look right. And it, they, they very much looked like boneheads, you know, and we come out and these guys, there's probably like a dozen of them. I mean, I, you know, this is a long time ago. My memory is not exactly, you know, perfect for this stuff, but these guys come out and they stand in front of us and the arms go out in like the Sieg Heil salute. Right. And there's a guy holding a swastika, like a stainless steel swastika standing right in the middle. And they start screaming epithets at us. And like, you know, then they, we start playing and we're like, you know what? Fuck these guys. We're playing, you know, and we played the full set and, um, dodging bottles the entire time. Cause they were throwing bottles and they were, they were beating people up on, you know, on the floor too. And we're playing and I hear the road manager, this guy, Miley, something from Guar. He was a great guy and he was a great road manager. Miley, I don't remember his last name, um, yelling at the stage manager of the club going, call the police, call the police. And the guy yells back, I did. They're not coming. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, we're dead. <laughs> so. As it turns out, and this is what I got later from Miley from Guar, he was, you know, I was talking to him about it because as soon as we finished, we packed up and got the hell out of there. You know, we got out of Dodge immediately. Um, Miley told me later that the venue only had four people working there at the time. They had sold 4,000 tickets and only brought in four people. They had the guy, a woman taking tickets, a guy behind the bar, um, a security guy managing the stage who was heroic because they were the kid, the Nazis were trying to get backstage and this guy was holding them off at the, at the door to the backstage. It was absolutely heroic. And then there was a fourth person, like a second bartender or something or a porter or something like that. Right. But Miley said that turned out the bartender was a hell's angel. And he said when the Nazis left the club, there were 50 Hells Angels outside waiting for them. Oh, geez. And they stomped them. And he said they, he was like, they flattened all of them. Not a single one of them walked away from it. And, you know, so it had a happy ending. Um, <laughs> we like Nazi bashing. <laughs> Any story. And then the Nazis lose. But I mean, that was, you know, it's like, it, it's like, of course, it was the only venue that had, you know, had beer and glass. You know, it was like, really? You know, but if you're going to have a Nazis, don't mix them with glass. Right. The, you know, the only other time is that I recall, like actually having a Nazi problem at one of our shows, because, you know, you'd get boneheads showing up once in a while, but they generally didn't come in gangs or whatever. And it's like, whatever, you know, um, but we played in Denver uh, with, on the Buzzcocks tour. This was with the Buzzcocks. And I don't think Letters to Cleo was on this gig. They only played a few of the shows, um, but it was us and the Buzzcocks and we're playing at the cafe central or something like that in denver and some kid comes up to me goes hey you know just so you know like there's a bunch of nazi skinheads out there you know i'm like all right whatever um i was like thanks and so i i said to pete shelley you know because i was like hanging out backstage and i see i see him he's like sitting there having a beer and i'm like i go sitting i'm chatting with him i go oh yeah by the way you know watch yourself there's like a bunch of nazi skinheads out there he goes are you kidding? I'm from London. I can handle these guys, you know? And I was like, 
good point. He's like, in the 1970s, we had a real problem with Nazi skinheads. But, you know, I'm not worried about Denver, Denver, America, you know. And uh, there, there was no problem, though, you know. I mean, they- You they call these Nazis back where I came from? Yeah, we've got real Nazis. This is- yeah, no, that's basically what he was saying. He was like, "Ah, this is nothing." These American Nazis, pussy Nazis here. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. The tour- touring with Guar and and the Buzzcocks was like it was an amazing experience. Like, yeah, wild. I bet you know. Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about you guys have a new band called Barbicide. So, <laughs> yes. Speaking of Nazis, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about the formation of the span, but also kind of within that is that as we're getting into this era that we're talking about, uh, just after God bless Satan, you guys both leave the band. um, And the reason a lot of that has to do with the way the sound is changing. They're moving away from ska. They're moving into this more experimental direction. Uh, would you say that would be the primary reason? I mean, there might be more complicated discussions about that, but that's kind of the essence of it, right? Well, honestly, that that kind of the sound changing happened after I left. So I, I yeah. left, like, I we just come back from a tour in Europe, and, and really just for, you know, for it was just things were – they were getting like factions in the band and there was like a lot of arguing and a lot of just tensions and it really wasn't good for my psyche and it wasn't good for my focus. And I just, I wasn't having a good time and I wasn't feeling the fun. And just for me, it was pure, you know, glee playing. So I just was like, Hey, listen, this isn't enjoyable for me anymore. I mean, it wasn't creative, you know, especially when we're on these long tours and that's what I really liked. I loved making the songs. I love creating the band and just doing all the stuff. And so it just was turning into a grind for me and just for my soul wasn't good. And I just said, you know, I remember drinking, where were we going from Brandon? It was from like Spain to Amsterdam in the back of a yeah. van, getting completely drunk, singing K-Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to leave this fucker. So we were just singing and just trash in the back of an empty van. Yeah. And, uh, and I just was like, okay, listen, I'm not, I can't do this, you know, anymore. And it was just, and it was just that point. It was like a breaking point. So I, I left. Um, we had started working on some songs for the new album, but they weren't completely, it wasn't wacky in the style yet. It wasn't different from where we were, but I just went, okay, I've had enough. So I left amicably. I just said, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm over it. And I was also, I was enjoying, you know, I was actually enjoying doing advertising. It was a creative thing. And right. So- you had a career, you had a full on career in advertising to attend to yeah yeah and i was and i was loving it you know i was i was making stuff and so i just went hey you know so the the sound hadn't really changed yet but um you could you could take it from there brian <laughs> no i mean that you know it the band the the creative input in the band pivoted to 
from the rhythm section to the horn section for the second album. Um, you know, because I, you know, whatever Michael, Michael and I basically, you know, with Brian and Andre, because I don't want to, I don't want to marginalize or minimize their contributions. Obviously, you know, Mephiscopheles would not have been Mephiscopheles without Andre and his brilliant storytelling, you know, lyrics, you know, lyrics and yeah, brilliant frontman. You know what I mean? It's like you, you, these songs, you know, Andre Andre's lyrics made these songs like cemented them into a, a an organism, you know, um turned a song like which was a fun silly tune like, you know, Doomsday into a really sinister, you know, <laughs> tune like Doomsday. And Andre brought so much to the band. I mean, and he and he does, and it's like it's just such a presence. And, and he still a, does. He's an amazing. He's an amazing frontman. No question. Uh, absolutely. And so, Brian then, too. You know, talk about and Brian, of course. Brian, yeah. Brian, and like people don't give him a lot of credit, you know. And he, just in terms of because he wasn't like the frontman, and he wasn't, you know. But Brian had so much to do. With, like and he was the keyboard player and brought just he was like the, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, and just brought such a yeah. liveliness. And just fun on the stage and just to also the writing and just kind of help just create a sustain. Right. And if you listen to what he plays, you know, if you listen to what he plays, he's an, he's a great, great keyboard yeah, player. So he was perfect, perfect for Mephiscopheles, you know? And then, you know, so with the second album though, that's when the horns brought in their stuff you have. And don't get me wrong. I think they're amazing songs. You know, I think, Satan on the Beach is a classic, you know, for some, uh, you know, Yellow Passion, all these songs were like really great tunes, but they were a, a, you know, you really, the band took a hard turn in another direction, you know, going from, you know, being this like punk, you know, punk ska band to, you know, being this you know, erudite jazz band, you know, that plays in a ska format, you know, that it's now like on WFMU, we'd like to introduce a band called Mephiscopheles. And they're, you know what I mean? <laughs> not to say that it, not to say that I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I really not, I'm not speaking derogatorily about it. It's a great record. I think Maxima Perversion is a great record, um, but I only have one song on it, you know, which was Turtle Soup. Um, and you know, and at that point, it's like the band started to, you know, become something different, you know, and then, you know, we toured on that for a while. We toured on that with the Blue Meanies a couple times, you know, um, and then, you know, Scott imploded, you know, and in 1999, I remember my last show was the the New England Scott Festival in New Hampshire um in august of 1999 i think and then i was like i was pretty much over it you know i wasn't crazy about the direction you know the music was taking because at that point we were writing the third album we were writing the maite waite songs you know i played most of those songs that ended up on that album initially you know while we were on tour and we were writing tunes and we'd come back and we you know rehearse and stuff and, you know, it's like I it's it's not my style. You know, it's like if you listen to me musically, you know, from the shaved pigs, which, you know, I'm not I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying. But my stylistically. <laughs> no, really. Okay. No, don't, don't do it. But stylistically. It. No, stylistically. It's like I haven't really changed that much. I'm a one trick pony. You know, it's I still play the same guitar solo I played in like, you know, 1991. Um, and 
you know, it's like there's, there, I think I started this before. It's like there's absolute continuity there. If you listen to, you know, the Shaved Pigs, then you listen to Mephiscopoli's, the early stuff, the Demon, you know, and God Bless Satan. And then you listen to the Barbicide album. It's the same band, essentially. You know what I mean? Like you, it, it's the continuity is there. The, the Michael and I, the Michael Reich and Brendan collaboration is a hundred percent there, you know? And so, you know, I mean, it's like we parted ways, you know, I, I was in the band for like three years after Michael, you know, I didn't leave it around the same time. I left in, I left in like 99. I think Michael left in like 97. So before Barbicide, like leading up to Barbicide, wasn't there a thing where Mephiscopheles gets back together, but you get a Mephiscopheles tribute band going? <laughs> well, you've got a, you've got a, Brendan, you can tell it because okay. there's actually another story involved, the lawsuit, because that, yes, yeah. that, that led up to Mephiscopheles stopped playing. And then the tribute, you, you, you could tell it because you kind of made it happen. So, you know, I had this idea. I had been playing. I moved out of the city. I moved up to Beacon, New York, which is where Pete Seeger lived. And I and I started playing with Pete Seeger. You know, I was in this pickup band, and I like, and I got this idea that like, you know, bands should always be able to play anywhere, anytime, with or without electricity, and blah blah blah. So I came up with this idea, and I was like, you know what, I want to do an acoustic Mephiscopheles set. And so I contacted everybody, um, and. I said, hey, you know, I, I want to do this thing. And um, I got a club on the Upper West Side. It's up by Columbia. It's at 106th Street. It's called the Underground. And um, Andre and Greg, understandably, are like, we can't do it because, you know, Osho still has a, an, an outstanding lawsuit against us. Well, you have to tell what you didn't tell the lawsuit part of the story. You've got to go back and you got to tell so give wait, us the short long of the let, lawsuit. Yeah. Let's 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 talk about let's um give us the lawsuit story when we go to the Patreon section. So we everyone oh, okay. just understands <laughs> that there is a lawsuit situation happening and that <laughs> and then if they want the full story if they want the full story uh, sign up to the Patreon okay, and listen fine. to the rest sorry. of it. There. Finish <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> right on. Right. No, I think that's totally fair. So you know, I contacted everybody and I was, I invited them and I was like, listen, anybody that doesn't want to come, that's totally cool. You know, this is an invitation. Just get together. We'll have a good time. Nobody's going to make any money. We're not charging admission, nothing like that. It's just for old time's sake and have fun. And everybody agrees. Um, although Brian was living in Arizona at the time, so he couldn't do it. So we got Jericho Rosenblum um, and Mike Bits was away and couldn't do it. So we got Big Dan. Um, Jezelson, who played with Meph, you know, uh, he toured with us a couple times and I know played, you know, subsequently when Bits couldn't make gigs, Dan, you know, Big Dan would sit in, you know, or, you know, whoever, but Big Dan was a pretty reliable sub. Um, and we got everybody together and I played acoustic guitar. Big Dan played an acoustic bass. Michael played Cajon, um, you know, and the idea, but, um, Andre declined to participate because of the lawsuit. And he was like, I just can't, I really, I can't do this in good conscience, which I totally understand. Um, and I was like, all right, man, that's, that's totally cool. You know, um, I'm sorry, but I understand. And, you know, I don't blame him. You know, it, it's like the lawsuit 
caused chaos in people's lives, you know? So and Mephiscopheles wasn't playing at the time. Right. They, they wouldn't, they were, they were not playing like Greg and Andre and bits and Brian were not playing because of this outstanding lawsuit, you know, which they, you know, was the right decision because, you know, it's like, you don't want to open yourself to even more liability and whatever. But you called the project doomsday, <laughs> the ultimate Mephiscopheles tribute, right? That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> Which is just funny because considering it was us, we like started the band. We named it. It's our songs. We're like, we're like, okay, we're the cover. We're our own cover band. And so, so I had to bribe Michael to do this. Michael's like, I, I don't want to. You lied to me. You just said it was, it wasn't the whole band. You just said, oh, it's just me and, and Jerrica. We're going to play some like acoustic <laughs> set. It'll be couple- fun. <laughs> so, yeah, so Michael was like, I'll do it if you play uh, birthday songs at my daughter's birthday party. <laughs> so I was like, all right, fine. So I went out to Brooklyn and I played, you know, happy birthday at his at his daughter's birthday party in some Rafi tunes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he agreed to do it. <laughs> and so I had I had Jerrica, who also had toured with Mephiscopheles. So, you know, she was a legit she was a legit player. I got um, Osho McCabe, Greg Robinson, um, Big Dan um jerica as i mentioned and me and am i forgetting anybody no that's a that was it so it was like seven seven of the eight people um and i sang which you know for better or for worse it would have been much better if andre had been there but it was still a lot of fun and it sounded great and people came and they had a great time and you know um and so yeah that was that was it and you know, the funny thing is a, a couple other bands later, I think like Spring Hill Jack did an acoustic reunion like right after it. It turned out it was a pretty popular idea. Yeah, this was like a decade ago, right? Twenty, Yeah, it was like 20, 2013 or 2014. Yeah. Okay, so how does this lead into Barbicide? When does Barbicide begin? Well, we never stopped. You know, Jerrica and I were doing like a, you know, a, a duet sort of thing, you know, playing ska tunes. She was on melodica. I would play acoustic. And then we, Mike, I finally convinced Michael <laughs> to start playing and he brought Unlove You. And there's actually a great acoustic version of Unlove You on Bandcamp or uh, Reverb Nation oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that we did with with a banjo, with cajon, um, melodica, guitar, and uh, a, acoustic bass. And it sounds great. Yeah. And that's from around 2015 or 2016. That's when Barbicide started. When Michael brought unlove you and we started to write songs together again in earnest and, and jezebel yeah well that's the thing yeah because brendan was like oh no man let's just play let's play and i said i said okay i'll play under two conditions the first one is that we're not going to do like unplugged acoustic <laughs> campfire <laughs> i was like i was like that's a really cute idea but i was like i want to play i want to i want to hit things loudly with sticks I said, I'm, yes. I'm too angry to play acoustic. <laughs> so I said, okay. And he, Brendan was like, okay. And, then, and I said, the other thing is, is that we don't play covers and we don't play any Mephiscopheles songs and we're not playing covers. We're playing like, let's write original songs and see what comes out of us now. And I, to me, that was like, Brendan was like, yep, great, let's do it. So we just started writing songs and working together. And it was just like, like how it was in the beginning. And it was really nice, yep. you know, because I'd kind of was like, I'm not going to do it. And it, there was something really special about um, just like let's write songs and you know and hear just like what happens to come out. What are we thinking about? What are we feeling? What's musically? You know, and there was so many things that were the same 
as when we first started. And also just our, 100%. our heads and our lives are completely different from where it was. And it's just funny. Cause like when you're 25 or you're 20, you know, your, your head's in a certain space and then, you know, your head's very differently, you know, 20, 30 years later. And, um, yep. you know, I think, I don't know, I'm a lot angrier than I used to be. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, we're, we've both been through a lot of shit and the world has like changed a lot. So I don't know, you know, but it's, it's cool. There's still very similar attitude and similar spirit, but it's just, I think just even just personally is, you know, just, you know, I hate to use the word artist, but just like as a songwriters and, you know, just like going, wow, that's, that's what we sound like. That's, that's what I'm thinking is really neat. You know, we're still, we're still the same people we were, we're just older. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. The record just came out um, about a month, a month or so ago. And it's called um, heart songs about heartbreak and Nazis. Yes. Yes. Explain this title. Well, I think when we started writing songs, we didn't have themes in mind. We were just writing what was coming from the heart and stuff. And a lot of them, we just realized at the end, we're like, a lot of them were about heartbreak and love loss. Like a lot of them have like un in the title, like unlove you. And, you know, why don't you love me anymore? And all just all these like real heartbreaking themes. And, and it's also something that we never really, I don't know, we're one to do in terms of writing songs like political songs or things like that. But we started writing some stuff and then um, this, just seeing all the anti-Semitism that's going on in the world and these Nazis down in Charlottesville and just all this like horrible shit. Um, you know, we wrote the song called always again, you know, which is a play on never again, but it just, um, just this feeling of like, just seeing, like we always say, never again, but you just see this like Nazis rising again and again. again. And now, especially over the last couple of weeks, just, you know, it's coming back. And, um, and it's also, it's really, you know, deeply personal to me because my dad is an Auschwitz survivor. So just to see this and I've never been, you know, one to like make a big deal out of, but it was just like, fuck, it's just, it's just hard. You know, it's devastating to see all this. So we wrote the song, you know, that's about, about, the Nazi rise again. And we're not trying to make it like it wasn't trying to be this, you know, a lecture on Nazis or say that Nazis are bad. I think we, we know that they are and just more of a reaction to it and just how it feels um, to be witnessing this. And also there's a couple of glimpses of power, you know, in terms of that, um, you know, that good people will, you know, will, will survive. Um, and it's not about wiping these out, but it's just about, I don't know, the talk, song talks about evolution and things like that. And just this idea that like, okay, just hang in there. You know, we will survive these things no matter what horrible people come against, you know, whether it's Jews and blacks and just all the hatred in the world now. So I think it's just one little, uh, one little gasp of, you know, word for the good people and for decent people. Um, Cause it doesn't seem like, many people are standing up. You also, um, before this record or earlier, you did a cover of the Eva destruction, which is a sixties yeah. protest song. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to cover that song? <laughs> well, I mean, the times we live in, you know, yeah. we get the, that sort of rumination, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Things don't seem to be getting better. They seem to be getting worse, you know? And, COVID then came along because we recorded that in like 2018 or 2019. Um, and then COVID came along, man, and blammo, you know, it became even more evident that 
you know, humanity is sort of in a downward spiral. Um, we, you know, for, for one of the specialized, you know, projects we recorded, uh, last night I had the strangest dream, which, you know, is in the same theme as Eve of Destruction because we keep marching closer and closer to war, you know, and there's, what can you do besides sit there helplessly, you know, and hope it doesn't happen or sing songs about it, you know, and, you know, they don't matter. Yeah. And you know, something, what I'd say is, and I think this is something that Mephiscopheles, you know, was a theme and what we're doing now. And it's just, to me, it's like one of the biggest, you know, features and factors of ska, you know, from the beginning was talking about really dark, dismal things, but sounding really positive, you know, like the music sounds yeah. really joyful and, but we're talking about really dark, fucked up things. And I think, you know, which I, I, and I've, I've always loved that kind of paradox and that kind of dichotomy of the, you know, the two forces against each other. Like there's so many ska songs in the sixties where you're just like, this is really dismal. Like, you know, things are getting worse, you know, but it's, yeah. but it sounds really positive. And I mean, like we have doomsday off our first album, things like that. So I think, I think just these kind of, you know, dark things done in a, a happy way. There's something, some real tension about that. And I think mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's also, I think, something that we did in, you know, in um, Mephiscopheles and, and this band is like, I think, you know, you're talking about in, in defense of ska. And I think, you know, there's a, there was a lot of goofy ska bands, a lot of goofy songs. And yeah, fair enough. But I think, like, for me, some of like the most powerful songs in, in each era was coming from Sky, you know, it was coming from the sixties and from the, what the specials were writing about madness and just a lot of the bands of selector, you know, a, a lot about some really dark dismal stuff. And, um, and I think we, we wanted to, you know, I, you know, have real props for like big issues and say, you know, dark, talk about dark things, but do it in a way that it's got a beat you can dance to, you know? Yeah. All right. So last question before we go behind the curtain and talk about the lawsuit, <laughs> I saw uh, online, there was a barbicide cocktail uh, submitted by someone named <laughs> DJ Ryan Midnight. Yes. What do you know about this? Ryan has been a rock solid supporter of barbicide since the very beginning. He runs a monthly um, ska show at a, at a club in Manhattan called Otto's shrunken head. And he brings in bands from all over the place, um, and it's a really, really wonderful night. Always has three bands. Um, we play it a lot. We're considered the Otto's house band by some <laughs> people. Um, but Ryan is big into the theme, too. Um, he's in the video, by the way. If you've seen our video, he's the guy with glasses who catches the uh, the wig. Um, but he's been a huge supporter of us since the very beginning. And, you know, Otto's is a tiki bar, so they have like, you know, fruity, you know, fancy drinks. Um, and Ryan was like, well, there obviously has to be a blue barbicide drink, you know, so he came up with this idea for a barbicide drink. So barbicide, we haven't actually mentioned this. Barbicide is the the fluid, I guess you could say, that <laughs> barbers use to clean their equipment, right? <laughs> yes. It's another yeah. trademark that we're infringing. Yeah, <laughs> this is our. You're seeing a pattern, but I think what we we no, see, Michael. Yeah. I just just for just for the record, 
This is a parody. It's not an infringement. It's a parody. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, Brendan. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's got it's got rum, uh, blue, curacao, simple syrup, club soda, and a plastic comb. Yeah. Yes. Have you had a Barberside cocktail? Yeah. Yeah, we had it at our, our release party for when we mm. yeah. And we had uh, we had jars of Barbicide uh, filled with it. We're pouring people little drinks and giving them combs. It was hilarious, delicious. How did the uh, How did the cocktails go over? Uh, people loved it. Yeah, it was free. <laughs> <laughs> they loved it. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were giving them away. People were very happy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've always found that, like, you know, you can send out a press release, and you know, it, it will eighty percent chance it'll get ignored. But if you offer free food and drinks, then Every reporter within a hundred miles will show up, you know. So we were ca- kind of counting on that principle. Yeah, <laughs> of course they were all writers about cocktails and and where you could b- get free food. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show, sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Additional music by Dan P. and the Bricks. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on social media. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of SPI is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leading you by saying Ska now more than ever. Baloney has a first name. It's A A R O N. <laughs> My Baloney has a second name. It's C A R N E S. Uh, it doesn't quite work. Uh, yeah. Nope. Got to change my name. Yeah. You should definitely change change your name. Yeah. C A R N S. Carnes. 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 I like that. Carnes. <laughs> so once we're done changing your name, you know what we're going to do after that? We're going to step behind the curtain with with our friends here from Mephiscopheles and Barbicide. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more. Talk more. Oh, they get into some uh, uh, lawsuit. Yeah. It's like nitty gritty. Yeah. If you like that kind of stuff, drop a little cash and give it a listen. Yeah. We started to get into it in, in front of the curtain. And then we said, no, no, no. Too hot. Too hot for the main feed. Got to take this behind the curtain. So $5, head on over to the Patreon, and we will see you over there. And by the way, while we're at it, we interviewed three other members of Mephiscopheles a little while back. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already listened to it. Yeah, go check that out. Who do we got next week, Adam? Next week, we have my friend, comedian, Anna Valenzuela. Oh, another scumedian. Probably one of the best. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.